You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This year marks the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. The great reformers Luther, Zwingli, Cranmer, and the rest were not, in their minds, creating something new. They were cutting through medieval superstitions and empty rituals to get back to the truth of Scripture and the practices of the early church. But what were those practices? Whether the Reformation was a true restoration can be debated, but that Christianity itself was a revolutionary new thing in the Greco-Roman world cannot be denied. In his book, Destroyer of Gods, Dr. Larry Hurtado argues that Christianity did not fit what religion was for people then. Roman-era critics designated it as a perverse superstition. Yet the very features of early Christianity that made it odd and objectionable in the ancient Roman setting have now become unquestioned assumptions about religion in much of the modern world. But we likely do not realize how unusual, even odd, these notions once were and are still in the larger context of human history. Nor do many of us realize that what are for us these commonplace notions originated in the rambunctious early Christian movement. My name is Coyle Neal, and I'm an assistant professor of political science at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. Joining me today to talk about his new book is Dr. Larry Hurtado. Dr. Hurtado is Emeritus Professor of New Testament Language, Literature, and Theology in the School of Divinity at the University of Edinburgh, and is a fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. He attends St. James Leith in, in, in Edinburgh, where he lives with his wife. Uh, Dr. Hurtado, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, so I guess uh, uh, the question that I, I, uh, I've wanted to ask you since I, I started reading the book, um, when I was an undergrad uh, and then even in, in grad school, I suppose down to now, the uh, sort of standard work on Christianity in the ancient world and, and the interactions with uh, uh, with the Roman government and so on was uh, Robert Louis Wilkins' uh, The Christians as the Romans Saw Them. Um, what, how, how is what you're doing different from what Wilkin is doing? Uh, where, where do you sort of mesh with him, or, or how are you doing something completely different? Well, uh, Wilkin's book, uh, uh, the Christians as the, as the Romans Saw Them, uh, as the title indicates, is very much focused on looking at the way sophisticated uh, writers such as Celsus, uh, Galen, and, uh, and others uh, referred to Christianity, described it, and responded to it. Um, that's one of the things that I deal with early in, a, in, in one chapter of my book, try to make the basic point that early Christianity uh, was perceived by people at the time as not being one flavor of ice cream among others, but as being something very, very different. So I, I, I affirm very much and build upon uh, Wilkins' work of that nature. What I then do in the main part of the book is to describe several features of early Christianity that comprised its, um, its uh, oddness or bizarre uh, character at the time, and, um, and how those, those features have come to be uh, kind of uh, commonplace assumptions about religion for us. So what uh, what is so odd about Christianity uh, that that we we don't assume is odd, but the Romans certainly would have? And I know that's I'm basically asking you to summarize your entire book. Well, I, I'll put it this way: when I was writing the book early on, I sent uh, some chapters to uh, a friend of mine who's a very respected senior figure, Edwin Judge, who um, is is a real pioneering figure in the study of uh, early Christianity uh, at uh, Sydney in Australia. And ask him for comment, and he, he he wrote back, emailed back very very firmly, saying, uh, "You must not call early Christianity a religion because it does not have any of the features that characterize religion in the Roman world. There are no shrines or temples. There's no image of the gods. There's no sacrificial system. There's no priesthood. Uh, there are no sacrificial rituals." So he said, "So it just it, it isn't a religion in a way in which people at the time would recognize it." And I remember writing back and saying, Edwin, thanks very much. I, I take your point. 
But if I say that early Christianity wasn't a religion, uh, my readers, who are sort of more general readers, won't know what that kind of saying. So I'm going to characterize it as a very different kind of religion. But Edwin's comments accurately capture some of the material, practical, simple ways in which early Christianity was odd. As I say, religion in the Roman world typically involves temples, shrines, physical places where you go to uh, meet the god or offer worship. Jerusalem temple for Judaism, for example, but for the pagan deities as well. Uh, it typically involves an image of the god, and so one of the things that puzzled people about early Christianity was that they didn't have an image of their god. How can you talk about a god without producing an image? Uh, they didn't offer sacrifices. They didn't, um, they didn't have a priesthood at that time. Um, and uh, so some people regarded them as a kind of phony pseudo-religion, a kind of crypto-religion of some sort. So it, it, it just didn't fit what people expected religion to be and to do in those and in other ways. Uh, so uh, uh, I, I wanted to ask this later, but I guess this kind of opens the door um, here, uh, speaking about weirdness. Uh, every every year uh, around Easter, uh, we, we rediscover something like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas. Uh, uh, is the, the weirdness of Christianity uh, confined to what we think today as Orthodox Christians, or, or does it include sort of agnostics, heretics, uh, and so on? How, how, do you, how do we sort of draw those lines uh, between, you know, mainstream Roman religion, Christians, and then the people that now we would look back and say, say heretics, uh, uh, relative to each other? Well, I, I wouldn't want to make an artificial, uh, uh, monolithic nature of early Christianity. Um, the thing we call early Christianity uh, in the first two, three centuries is a very thing. I think you can't talk about a historical entity called Christianity in that period, but you have to allow for considerable variation. So yeah, there were Christians... Uh, Montanist Christians, there were Marcionite Christians who, for example, didn't regard the Old Testament as um, authoritative scripture of God. The Old Testament is the true high God, but thought that that was an inferior deity. Um, there were so-called Gnostic or Gnosticizing Christians. Uh, the hardcore versions of them, who were those who, again, sharply distinguished between the, the true high God and the creator God, and thought of the creator God as being uh, an evil deity. So they saw, you know, strong opposition between these two deities. Um, that, too, was a kind of Christian belief of the time. Uh, there were Christians who thought, such as Valentinians, it seems, who thought that there were sort of, um, you know, garden-variety Christians, second-class Christians, and then first-class Christians. They, they thought of different classes of Christians, different levels of spirituality, with different identities attaching to them. And then you have the emerging so-called great church or proto-Orthodox tradition. Which seems to have won out in the end, largely, I think, because, not by, by successfully being able to squelch other versions of Christianity because they didn't have any sort of coercive power for doing so, but largely because it seems that the emergent great church version of Christianity was able to communicate itself more winsomely and more successfully to a greater number of people. It was kind of, you know, grassroots, free, uh, free range competition. And uh, the versions of Christianity—it wasn't uniform—but those versions of Christianity, that that family of, of Christianities that formed Orthodox Christianity, were able, as they say, to communicate themselves more successfully than competitor versions. And uh, well, we, I, I guess uh, we don't want to get too bogged down by dates and and, uh, and, and names and so on here. But uh, uh, if if you were a, a Roman trying to sort out, you know. 
again, who, who we would say now is, is orthodox as compared to the, the people that now we would say are heretics. Uh, is there a difference in the distinctives between someone who's a Gnostic as opposed to someone who's an orthodox Christian? Or from the Roman perspective, are they all just weird? Well, we know that there were there were different kinds of Christian responses in their society, even within the New Testament writings. I mean, look at the uh, book of Revelation in the, in the letters that are sent to the seven churches. And in a couple of those addresses to a couple of the churches, the author complains about people very bitterly, whom he describes as leading God's people astray, as leading them into what he calls fornication and idolatry. Uh, now, he calls them uh, uh, pejorative names like uh, Balaam, and Jezebel, uh, most scholars think that these are his names that he's giving to real individuals, that the Balaam figure is perhaps some male figure in one of one or two of these churches, that the Jezebel figure may well be a, a woman figure, but that from, from the standpoint of the people themselves, these people, whom this guy calls Jezebel and Balaam, thought of themselves as being prophets. Uh, they thought that they had a divine inspiration, and under the force of their divine inspiration, where it appears promoting a, a kind of accommodation, perhaps, to the larger pagan religious world that might have involved going into pagan temples or participating in the worship of the emperor. Uh, and their teaching was, it's okay to do that because God knows you, perhaps God knows your heart. He knows that you're only doing it as a matter of um, you know, social conformity. He knows that you love God, so don't worry about it. It's not such a big deal. From the author, from the standpoint of the author of the Book of Revelation, however, no, that that is an unacceptable compromise, and uh, he demands a much more rigorous vis-a-vis uh, -vis the uh, the larger pagan world. So you don't have to wait for the so-called Gnostics in the second, third centuries. Already in the first century, you have different forms of negotiating their existence among Christians, and uh, so from from the outsider standpoint, probably those Christians who were more accommodating such as the Baal of Jezebel figure in Revelation, those people who may have been promoting a more accommodationist stance may have been regarded more kindly, more favorably by, uh, by pagan critics because the really objectionable feature of, of Christians, the ones that they criticized, was those Christians who refused to uh, participate in the worship of the gods. Uh, on which the validity of society and the validity of the empire was thought to rest. So it was really that kind of, from their standpoint, bloody-mindedness, their, their refusal to just go along with their fellow citizens and demonstrate their, uh, their loyalty and their concern for the gods. The refusal to do that, that was the most odious, most objectionable, and in some sense most um, socially divisive aspect of, of those Christians. So... Uh, insofar as what, whatever we call them, Gnosticizing or, you know, from a later standpoint, uh, heretical or whatever, but just to put it less judgmentally, those Christians who, uh, who were more accommodating religious practices of the time, more accommodating to the gods, were probably regarded as less threatening and were regarded as more favorable by outside critics, whereas those who practiced a more rigorous and such as advocated by the author Revelation or such, ad, such as advocated by the Apostle Paul, probably generated much more hostility. Now, some of the, uh, uh, well, you've, already, you've already mentioned some of the distinctives that you talk about uh, in terms of not having a physical location uh, uh, that's, you know, set aside as especially holy, uh, uh, not having, 
uh, idols, I guess we can go ahead and call them, uh, uh, that are, you know, focuses of worship. Uh, and, and, and then you make, I think, uh, uh, one of the central points of your book is that those are actually, we assume they still perhaps things that we shouldn't just assume. They are somewhat odd in the world. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Uh, how how are those things that made Christians distinct distinct in the first century and second century, uh, and to some extent even in the third century, um, how are those still things that make Christians distinct today? Uh, or or have we assumed that so much that now, now those aren't distinctions anymore? Maybe I didn't ask that question as well as I should have. Well, the, the main part of the book is is to talk about is to emphasize that in its in its uh, early situation in the first couple of centuries, especially early Christianity was, as I say, uh, judged by the conventions of the time, and odds are uh, distinctive. Uh, the other point that I make, uh, not as heavily, but but that I try to make it usually at the opposite of each chapter, uh, is that uh, these features that made early Christianity bizarre in that time subsequently have become kind of commonplace assumptions about religion. So that whether you are a Christian or not, whether you are religious at all or not, you probably share these assumptions about religion, but you don't know where they come from, and you may not be aware of how bizarre they are in the larger history of the world. So as I say in one chapter, if you were to go out into the street with a microphone and ask people, uh, do you believe in God? You would probably get one of three answers, yes, no, or I'm still investigating the question. It's very unlikely that anybody would say, excuse me, gods, are we talking about? As I say, in the West, even atheists presume that there's only one God to disbelieve. Uh, but that's a bizarre notion in the history of the world. Throughout most of the history of the world, you know, the millennia, and around the world to this day, most people, well, the default setting of most people is that there have to be multiple deities. There are multiple forces in nature. The world is a complex place. It has good things. It has bad things. Uh, and, and, and they tend to think that the most logical thing is to presume that there's a multiplicity of divine beings to account for the perceived multiplicity of, uh, of causes and, and forces in the world. The notion that there's only one, one God who's in charge of everything is a kind of bizarre notion, but it has come to be uh, the default notion. So you know, Richard Dawkins or someone like uh, 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 Stephen Hawking will say, you know, if there is God, then thus and so. And you think, well, he's, he's still assuming uh, that, that uh, the, the issue on the table is, is there the one God or not? The alternatives are not even considered. So that's one thing. Uh, we assume that, um, uh, again, whatever your stance toward religion, you may say, you may hear people say, for example, I don't like religion. I don't like organized religion because it's all about do's and don'ts. I'm trying to tell you how to live. Well, in the Roman world, religion didn't tell you how to live. Uh, it wouldn't occur to you to go to the gods to inquire how to live the life. If you wanted to consider how to live a good life, you would study philosophy. Uh, you went to the gods in order to attain favors or help or blessings, so if your wife was pregnant, you might go to a particular god and say, you know, my wife's pregnant, oh, so-and-so, if you give us a healthy son, I promise that I will give you in return, you know, I don't know, an animal for sacrifice or some of money or whatever. It was a kind of quid pro quo arrangement And then if you had a safely delivered son, you would go into the temple and say, I promise that I would give you this. Thanks a lot for our healthy son. Here's this goat or sum of money or, or whatever that I promised you. You went to the gods for protection, for, uh, for health, for uh, things like that, but you, you didn't go to the temple and you didn't expect to go to the priest and ask it. Early Christianity, inheriting its stance from the Jewish matrix out of which the early Christian movement came, early Christianity has scriptures that are com- 
they're uh, full of commandments, divine commandments about how you to live your life, how to do your business, how do you how do you conduct your marriage, how do you raise children, uh, all kinds of ethical requirements. That has come to be a commonplace for us. So we assume, as I say, that religion is all about do's and don'ts. We get that from the cultural influence of Christianity. Um, we tend to think of uh, religion as involving scripture, sacred writing, sacred texts. Again, in the history of the world by far, most religions don't involve scriptures or sacred texts. That's a feature of and also Islam, the Abrahamic religions, that certain uh, you know, canon of writings is privileged and sacred and used as a core aspect of their worship and of their, their religious ethos. That's not the case for Roman religion otherwise at all. So, um, so in a whole variety of ways, um, early Christianity uh, has features that set it apart in that setting and have come to be for us, as I say, kind of unexamined assumptions that we then generalize about religion in general. Uh, but it's a mistake to assume most religion then and actually most forms of religion today are not characterized by those things. Whatever you, whatever you do about it, whether you're a practicing Christian or an outside critic or whatever, the book is intended to say this, this, this book will help you understand why you think some of the things that you do about religion. Right. And of course, modern philosophers would be delighted to tell you how to live your life and how to raise your children and so on. But of course. Yeah. That's not how we think of it. Um, not, not anymore, no. It's uh, too busy uh, weighing the meaning of words, I guess. <laughs> yeah, which, uh, which can also affect how we live our lives, uh, to, to, to be sure. Um, so, uh, uh, in, in terms of uh, uh, responses, uh, again, one of one of the things that you you don't go into as uh, as much in your book, uh, the uh, the question of responding to someone that is this different uh, in 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 many many instances was answered uh, with persecution, right? I mean, the the, the response, uh, not ongoing certainly, and not continual for for three centuries, but, but occasional. I'll tell you get to uh, that is the one who does big empire empire wide persecution. Uh, is, is the Christian response to persecution uh, at all distinctive? Uh, or is that sort of a standard uh, uh, response that any good, you know, religious, pious, I, I guess we should say, uh, pious, philosophically-minded person would have had in the ancient world? Well, um, I guess I first want to say that, that you're quite right to say that uh, if, if we mean by persecution state-sponsored uh, acts of, of hostility against Christianity, yes, it, it seems to have been um, sporadic, it seems to have been um, um, in, in the main localized until you get well into the, the third century and particularly toward the end of the third century uh, where, where it becomes more, more empire-wide. Uh, but uh, beyond that, and I actually think much more frequent and much more troublesome than that for most Christians was what I would call simply ostracism and harassment. Uh, uh, in, a, in an early writing, I distinguished between a social opposition to early Christianity and political opposition or state opposition. I think that what I meant by social opposition was, you know, abuse that, that you might take from uh, members of your family um, or your neighbors or members of your, uh, your guild uh, or workmates. Um, and again, you know, in the Mediterranean world where people uh, in the cities live cheek by jowl uh, in these little, little, little apartments and uh, cooked out in the open and, and socialized out in the open, uh, the way they still do a lot in Mediterranean countries. Uh, who you were, your practices, your attitudes, uh, everything about you was, was, was fairly well known. And so the opportunities to both to communicate something of your religious and political views and the opportunity for other people to tell you what they thought of them were, were much more frequent than they were for us today. And so I think that, uh, that we, we, we sometimes in the past, I think, have been 
preoccupied with the experience of state pogroms or, or persecutions, and they were severe when they happened. Far more frequent, far more quotidian experience, I think, of Christians was what I lost as a harassment and social tension. And um, that, that is what you see being written about. You know, for example, in the Epistle to the Hebrews, in the New Testament even, that famous passage, you have not yet resisted unto death, but you've had your goods spoiled and uh, confiscated and, and buffeted about. That's probably the kind of stuff that goes on. You know, people being sort of beaten up in the street or, or people coming in and throwing their goods out into the street or whatever. I mean, that sort of stuff goes on, you know, uh, nowadays as well in, 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 in uh, some Mediterranean countries and households. So that's the sort of thing that Christians would endure. Now, as to what Christians did against it, well, of course, there are the frequent exhortations in the New Testament writings, early Christian writings, not to obey, not to respond kind, uh, to, to basically uh, turn the other cheek, you know, in the famous image. And um, that, uh, there, it's hard to say, but I, I, I don't know that we have uh, examples of other groups in the time that underwent the same levels of harassment and ostracism. So it's hard to make a comparison. Of course, in some of the philosophical traditions, such as the Stoic tradition, you're taught that you should you should sort of um, you know go with life as it takes you. So uh, if uh, things go bad for you, you should just man up and take it and and be able to ride it out. Uh, even so far as the classic uh, noble death, so that even if you were put to death for your beliefs, you should undergo it and, and, uh, and remain steadfast. So Christians weren't alone in their steely determination to. Uh, those who did so in their steely determination to maintain their faith even to death. And it's one of the reasons why people like um, Galen and some other people at the time express a certain grudging admiration for Christians. I mean, Galen says, for example, that uh, these, these Christians have never been properly taught philosophy, which he considers a precondition for being able to live a good disciplined life. And yet he says they live by the kind of virtues that we try to teach people philosophy. But it's amazing. These people have never really studied philosophy, but they exhibit chastity and the kinds of virtue that uh, we advocate. So in some sense, early Christians impressed some people by expressing virtues that were prized by wider circles in the society. But but Christians surprised people by being able to manifest these virtues more consistently or more thoroughly, uh, even though they hadn't undergone kind of, uh, you know, two or three years of... Uh, postgraduate training in philosophy right, right. than some people thought necessary at the time in order to put yourself into a position to be able to live that way. So they, their great puzzlement was, how did the Christians do it? You know, uh, they, they don't have this kind of rigor and philosophical training, and yet they exhibit these uh, as these being good ones. Well, even the poor and uneducated slaves manage to display the virtues, right? It's, yep. it's not just... Uh, not just not just that they are not philosophically trained; it's sort of all classes, women included. I mean, I mean, kind of a democratic view there as well. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I guess I, uh, I, I like the point about the social ostracism being kind of the big one. Uh, I, I remember reading, uh, I think it's the Perpetua Passion narrative, um, or of course she is in jail and, and is executed eventually. Uh, but the the bulk of that narrative is about her estrangement with her family. Right, it, it's her, you know, being being broken apart from her father and her. I think her husband might have been dead, although I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, yeah, no, that's that's really the, point. Point. the estrangement that occurs between her and her father. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, I've. Uh, but of course, the many exhortations, the 
many exhortations that we have, in, even as far back as the letters of Paul from earliest writings onward, um, exhortations about, um, you know, uh, uh, slaves uh, of, of non-Christian masters, obey your masters, or uh, directions given to, say, Christian wives of non-Christian men, uh, submit to your husbands, and, you know, the passage in 1 Peter, uh, so that you might... Uh, uh, bear witness to your husband or convert your husband without a word. Right. Simply by your browbeating or propagandizing, just be a good Christian wife, uh, and and you're more likely to win over that way than by hectoring. So they, these writings with these directs clearly indicate, I think, that the, the sources' intentions were more likely at that level. The famous saying ascribed to Jesus: "A man's enemies will be those of his own household, father against son, mother against daughter, and so on." I think those are accurate reflections of what was the more typical. Uh, negativity of being a Christian, that uh, people found you to be strange, suspicious, antisocial. I mean, for example, Roman households typically had uh, little images of the Roman deities in the household, and one of the things that members of the household, slave and free, were expected to do on appropriate occasions was to reverence the household images, the household deities, as a sign of their family solidarity in seeking the welfare of the family because the household deities were believed to be protectors of the home, of the household. So you reverence them as a way of keeping them on your side, keeping them from, you know, from, from disease or burglary or earthquake or, or such things from happening. And if you refuse to do that, you know, that, you know, quite frankly, you piss off the deities, that bad things could happen. And so if you're a member of this pagan household, a slave, a spouse, a child, uh, someone other than the paterfamilias, somebody other than the head of the household, and therefore more subservient. And you say, "Oops, sorry, I can't do that anymore. I don't, I don't reverence these deities anymore." That wasn't considered a matter that was your choice. You remember this household. We need to stand together in reverencing the deities because we want to make sure that they protect us. And so, by you refusing to do so, <clears throat> you could be thought of as as not only uh, being divisive in the family but perhaps endangering the, the wider circle of the family. Same goes for the city and even for the empire. So to refuse to reverence the gods of the empire, such as uh, you know Pliny, who requires these Christians in the early 2nd century in his province of Pontus, and he says, I required them to reverence the gods and to, to offer incense to the image of the emperor. From his standpoint, what he's asking these people to do is simply to demonstrate their solidarity, their social solidarity with the social and political order, and their refusal to do so, he sees as deeply seditious and perhaps, in some level, uh, potentially dangerous to the uh, to the solidarity and to the to the safety even of the site uh, the society and the political order. Right, and it's it's something that, as, as far as we know, literally no one else would have would have refused to do, except maybe the Jews. The Jews are the only ones that we know of who take a similar principle kind of stand, uh, and. Uh, that's often commented on, objection and objected to by pagan critics of the time. Uh, however, uh, Jews typically weren't uh, persecuted by the state for their stance. Uh, the Roman political order saw religion very much typically as associated with your ethnic um, affiliation. Egyptians, you know, they, they would comment the Egyptians worship these animal gods. What a weird thing. They have dog gods, crocodile gods, cat gods. Ugh. From their standpoint, they thought that to be horrible. But it's the Egyptians. you got to leave them to it. It's their religion. Let them go. They were quite prepared to allow for each ethnos, each nation, to have its own deities and have its own practices. 
And as far as they were concerned, therefore, they, they, they were able to consign, so to speak, the Jewish monotheistic stance, the Jewish refusal to worship the deities, as something that was simply part of their ancestral heritage. They regarded it as weird, strange, hey, the, you know, it's part of their ethnic peculiarity. Every nation, as I put it in the book, I think, every nation has its ethnic peculiarities, and the Jews do also only more so from their standpoint. Uh, but in the case of early Christianity, uh, it's a trans-ethnic religious movement recruiting adherents from well beyond the Jewish people, so uh, and, and translocally and transethnically. So, so they can't call upon a kind of ethnic heritage to justify their stance. I mean, if you're Joe Bloggs pagan living in some city, and one week you're a loyal practicing member of your family and of your guild. Maybe you undergo conversion process, and two weeks later, uh, you're you're suddenly saying, "No, I don't worship those gods anymore. I'm not supposed to. I don't consider them valid." Your family and your friends and your neighbors are going to say, first of all, what you're doing is really weird and objectionable, and you have no bloody right in doing so. Who do you think you are? Uh, Jews, they could excuse, but you're not a Jew. You're one of us, and you're acting as some kind of bizarre, anti-social, anti-religious way. So, so, so Christians could not call upon the kind of ethnic privileges that had been granted to the Jews. And of course the Jews lose their ethnic privileges when they rebel, and Christians separate them. Uh, sort of in that 60 to 120 yes, window. Yeah, in, in the course of the of the Jewish revolt of 66, and then the subsequent uh, Jewish revolt, in, in uh, particularly 132, 135, right. um, these two successive uh, Jewish revolts, um, yeah, the, it, it often resulted in loss of some privileges, so by one by 132 to 135, of course, the emperor decides to simply uh, remake Jerusalem into a pagan city. And so right. he renames it, he commissions pagan temples there, and forbids Jews to even live in the city of Jerusalem. So they do lose some of their privileges, um, but uh, they, they not all of them. They, they're a kind of uh, genocide, so to speak. Uh, they, 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 the Romans punish them with, uh, with the removal of some of their privileges, but they, they resurface in, in some respects. They, right. they continue. Jews aren't, aren't punished or persecuted thereafter, um, only in times of revolt when they, when they raise their hand against uh, Roman order. This is, a, this is definitely a rabbit trail, but it is something that I'm, I am a little bit interested in. From, from uh, what I remember from my, my undergrad uh, Romans and Christians courses, the, uh, the sort of the big four religions that the Romans didn't tolerate, uh, Christians and, and Jews, once, once the Jews rebel, uh, with with all of the mod- uh, caveats that, that you just gave, um, uh, the Bacchants, right, the, uh, uh, the the followers of Dionysius, uh, who they tolerated the Greeks, and then the Druids, uh, uh, for reasons that are maybe a little bit vague and, 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 uh, and unclear. Uh, in terms of the the Roman view of toleration, uh, was it just entirely political? I mean, as long as you were willing to submit to the Roman state, uh, they didn't really care, and they just they saw part of submitting to the state was you worship you worship whatever the god was that they they thought you needed to worship at the time, or or was there some kind of dedication to you no know, you you need to actually even if it's just a surface level uh, confession you need to have some kind of confessed belief in the god. Uh, the, the impression I have is that in, in most periods of the Roman Empire. The main, particularly the first two two centuries or so, um, 
there wasn't a, you know, there wasn't a requirement that you had to show up and participate in, let's say, the Roman state cult. I mean, we know that, that the, the Roman state cult was set up, state cults were set up, particularly in the East, very early, and emperor cults set up in the East, right. modern-day modern day Turkey, Syria, Greece, areas like that, uh, quite, quite uh, aggressively. Uh, by the way, mainly by local initiative, not right. by the emperor, said, but, but by local people wanting and actually petitioning the emperor, can we please dedicate a temple to you? And, uh, and set up a priesthood and so on. These were ways of demonstrating loyalty to the empire. They tended to be done by the, the local political and social elites who wanted to preserve their elite status and wanted to, to demonstrate their, their loyalty to Rome and thereby have their own local elite status affirmed, ratified. Uh, and, and, and so it was uh, political, it was economic, it was social, and, and religious. Again, one of the things that we have to be aware of is, is the tendency to imagine that in order for something to be genuinely religious, it must have some sort of, I don't know, heartfelt thing. It must involve some sort of emotive love for the deity or devotion or captivation of the deity. Again, that's due to the influence of Christianity in our culture. Uh, throughout most of human history, to this day, forms of religion do not involve that kind of emotive or mystical type of thing. You go in and you do a transaction with a deity that you need. You need something done. The deity does it, and you give him thanks. It's, it's a kind of transactional thing, or a way of demonstrating your social loyalty, or in many cases, uh, ritual actions that you perform. To keep the deity off your case. To keep the deity happy. A lot of ritual behavior is prophylactic. You know, try to keep keep the gods happy and keep them away from you. Um, so the Romans were quite tolerant of religious diversity, and by and large, do not seem to have instituted some sort of state religion that everybody had to count on to. One of the things that happens, though, is that in the engagement with Christianity, Roman judicial practice changes. And so, for example, Pliny's letter that I referred to earlier, this Roman governor Pliny, in the early 2nd century, who, um, who writes to the emperor about his handling of Christians there in the province of Pontus uh, and Bithynia, and uh, he, he writes to the emperor and says, I, I, I've heard about you know, Christians being tried before. I don't have a lot of direct experience. These people have been reported to me. I've interrogated them. Here's what I've discovered. And here are the actions that I've taken. And then he recounts them. Uh, what I've done is I've called them in. I've ordered them to, uh, as they say, to, to offer uh, incense to your image, to reverence the gods. And he says to curse Christ. Uh, uh, something that I'm reliably informed a true Christian cannot be made to do. But if they're willing to do these things, I've let them go. I hope that's okay. If they haven't been willing to do these things, then I've executed them. Because, you know, you can't allow people to uh, demonstrate to, to demonstrate that d disobedience to, to the wrong order. Now, as far as I've been able to tell, I'm checking with, with historians of Roman law, and I'm not a historian of Roman law, but the ones that I've been able to check with, people like Timothy Barnes and others, um, as far as we can tell, this seems to be a kind of judicial wrinkle uh, that that other that it's not attested previously. That is the requirement that uh, people have to reverence the image and to curse Christ and so on. These are judicial practices that seem to have been formulated specifically to deal with Christianity. And so, what's interesting, it appears, if so, that already by the early second century, not only is um, is is Rome. You know, attempting to have an impact upon Christianity, but early Christianity is having an impact upon Roman judicial procedure. Um, 
on the fly initially, and then becoming standardized as the way in which, as the later martyr accounts uh, show, uh, the demand that something very, very similar uh, as a way of, of seeking their conformity. So, so oddly enough, it looks to me as though early Christianity, at a very early point, began to have an impact on Roman judicial proceedings uh, in a way that wasn't uh, that we don't have evidence for it being uh, applied to other uh, religious movements at the time. I mean, the Bacchants are simply expelled from Rome and sent away. Right. Uh, and, and, and at certain points, other religious groups sometimes suffered uh, expulsion from the city of Rome. That's about as far as it went. Uh, but early Christianity, translocally, in various settings, you know, in North Africa, in Gaul, in uh, modern Turkey, uh, and in uh, Italy itself, in various locations, Christians we know across the first two or three centuries in Egypt, for example, are suffering uh, uh, pogroms, uh, social harassment, and even state executions. And, and certainly, once you have the uh, the Egyptian citizen, you can't even really escape into the uh, the ethnic enclaves anymore. Now, the the same law for everyone, and that all of it has to be somehow worked out by the by lawyers. Um, well, we're uh, we're uh, uh, running a little long. I don't want to take all all of your time away from you today. Uh, just uh, maybe a, a a question uh, to close us out. If someone who's unfamiliar with the early church uh, wants to read something, obviously they should read Destroyer of the Gods first. Uh, but if they want to dig into primary texts. Uh, where would you, would you recommend they uh, they begin? Uh, either Christian or, or non-Christian texts, or, or both? Well, I guess I would, to, to mention one of each, uh, personally, I think I would ask people to say, to, to as, a, as a taster, to dip into this little thing called the Epistle uh, to Diognetus. Uh, sometime in the 2nd century, uh, we don't know the author, uh, but he writes basically uh, for uh, outsiders, for, for non, non-Christians, it's not a formal uh, apologia or defense of Christianity to the government. It, instead, it looks as though it's written to just, you know, the non-Christian public of the time. And it basically says, here, who we, here here's who we are as Christians. He sort of describes Christian practices and beliefs. And it's interesting, emphasizes, we wear the same clothes that you do, we eat the same food that you do, we are not, you know, we don't have two heads, we don't practice weird things. Uh, and so on the one hand, you know, we're, we're not trying, we're not trying to be difficult. <laughs> we're, we're, we're just like wherever we're found, we fit in with the local people as best we can, but here are things that we can't compromise on, so the state is attempting to negotiate their existence, articulate themselves in as whimsical a way as they can for the outsider at the time. The other text I guess I would mention is an outsider text. It is probably um, Kelsus' um, true word. Kelsus is a, again, uh, late second century pagan, sophisticated critic of Christianity, who writes this full-scale treatise attacking Christianity, um, and, uh, and and that makes that makes it interesting. If you want to see what a learned, sophisticated outsider thought of Christianity, uh, Kelsus' uh, treatise is probably the fullest uh, and um, most explicit uh, treatment of the matter. Which we have to uh, we have to get through origin, right? That's that's. Um, it it, uh, it, uh, it doesn't survive in its original form. Uh, what happened is that the Church Father Origin in the early third century wrote a refutation of it, and as you do in those days, he quotes a large block of it and then refutes it, and another large block of it and refutes it. And so by putting together these large quotations, scholars think that we pretty well have the original composite work of of Kelsus that we can reconstruct. So it's now available, of course, in translation published separately in a rate that you can get off the internet or wherever. Well, as always on... uh Christian humanist profiles. It's our practice to give the guests the last word. Uh, so uh, it, it, the, the, the microphone is yours. Uh, whatever you'd like our listeners to hear about. Well, I'll just say that I hope that people will uh, will 
buy the book <laughs> and read it. Uh, it's it's available now in paperback, so it's uh, it's far less uh, expensive than it was. I think it's down to about two thirds of what the hardback price was. So I hope that people buy. I wrote it for I emphasize I wrote it for a general reader. Uh, it's got seventy pages or so of, of endnotes where I try for those who are interested in boring into my sources, they can if they want to. But it's written uh, for the general reader who's not a not an academic but just is, is curious. Uh, it's also written not simply for Christians. I hope that Christians would find it instructive in some ways, but it's also written for people who would say, I don't want to be, but who would want to know something about um, what early Christianity was like and where some of the ideas that they take for granted came from. All right, very good. Well, thank you again, Dr. Hurtado, for joining us on Christian Humanist Profiles. And thank you, listeners, for joining us as well. If you have comments or questions, please feel free to post them on the show notes at christianhumanist.com. Send an email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or comment on the Facebook page. Be sure to pick up a copy of Destroyer of the Gods from Baylor University Press or check out Dr. Hurtado's blog at larryhurtado.wordpress.com. Christian Human Profiles is a program on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Filippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Be listening for the next episode of Christian Humanist Profiles.